the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So here we are again, ladies and gentlemen, episode 62 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. The only podcast that rates, reviews, and then ranks every track of every heavy metal and hard rock album you care to mention or think about. Here with Rich and Steve as usual evening chaps hope you've had a good week i certainly have um if you've been here before then you know how this works we have three albums we each choose an album based on a theme which i'll come on to in a minute uh we listen to it for a week or so and then we score every single track after we've argued vehemently about the merits of each of them for a generally about 20 minutes per album, and then we put them into the exclusive heavy metal and hard rock Hall of Fame. So, uh, yes, the theme. Uh, Every week we base our choices on a rough theme. It kind of keeps us in check and makes sure that we don't go too too mad or stupid, although we manage to do that most of the time anyway. Um, And it is a tombola style we pick a uh, we've got a number of categories numbered one to a zillion we put a randomizer on it and whatever the randomizer come up, comes up with the number comes up with we choose the corresponding theme after we've rejected the ones we don't like anyway this week we are on bass players now before you switch off because obviously bass players are not generally speaking the most lauded or appreciated musicians in a band, we have uncovered three who are sensational. And the albums that they feature on are sensational, without, I think, any exception. Um, so, Richard, Steve, uh, take us through your choices. Start with you, uh, Richard. Uh, you, you've you've got the newest album. It's only about 30 years old. I know, I know. Completely dated by a recording of an American president on one of the tracks, and you realise it's how many presidents ago? Uh, Yes, yeah, 1992, and an album that I want, I really felt the bass playing was fantastic on, just kept going back and back and back to it, really holds the album together, and um, it's a band uh, I know and love, we all know and love, it's Megadeth, and uh, it's their album Countdown to Extension. Of course, Mr. Dave Ellefson on bass. Steve, Excellent. what about yours? Yeah. There were two schools of thought here, weren't there? Which was either A, choose a bassist, because that's the theme, or B, just choose an album we liked because someone was playing bass on it. So that, those are the parameters <laughs> straight away. So, so I could have gone lazy. I could have gone lazy, but I didn't. And I thought... So who are the bass players I really like? And I thought, obviously, Michael Anthony, but we actually did a Diamond Dave album a couple of episodes back. Geezer Butler. We did a Sabbath album. I think it was in the previous episode. So Chris Squire, for example. But I just thought, really? Do I need another Yes album? And um, answered no. And, of course, the great thing about the pod is that it's unearthed or brought to our attention many, many bass players who you'll never find on any of those lazy-ass top 100 lists of great bass players because they're just not known. So and I've noticed three down who I thought, who over-reviewed just one of their albums. Well, a couple of, Trevor Boulder, for example, of Uriah Heap, done a couple of albums, Dieter Horns at Lucifer's Friend, um, and Ed Grundy at Blackrock. Bass players I knew nothing about before the pod, and I just think they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant, and they should be you know, acclaimed for the, for the skills they've got. I've gone for a bass player who shouldn't be quite acclaimed in that in that bracket. But he is a very good bass player, and I've chosen him, well, because more of 
the size of his personality and his role um, in effectively creating a kind of monster of a band. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nicholas Six of Motley Crue. And I've gone for Too Fast for Love, their debut album. From 82, so 10 years earlier. And then we're going to rewind another two years to 1980 for me. So I, I went through a very similar process and, and it started off with me sitting down late uh, after we finished the last episode thinking, right, what can I find that's new and brilliant? And then I'll listen to it and see whether I can hear the bass on it. And if I can hear the bass on it, then that will pretty much tick the box. And the more I played, I came up with some really interesting stuff. But in the end, I came down to two bass players who are famous because they're bass players, but also famous a bit like Nicky Six because of the role that they played in their respective bands. And when you talk about bass players, really, and, and if you're talking about early metal and hard rock, you can't really go much further than either Lemmy or Steve Harris, I don't think. And I think of the two, much as I love Lemmy, I think Steve Harris is the governor. And therefore, I have chosen Iron Maiden's self-titled debut album from 1980, which I would venture, and we'll have this conversation, I'm sure, is one of, if you had to draw up a list of the 10 most important heavy metal albums of all time in terms of how they influenced the genre, then this, I would argue, would have to be on it. And I might argue that Too Fast for Love would have to be on it as well. I'll tell you the other thing that I realised, of course, is that um, Steve and I, we've both chosen bass players who are the leaders of their bands and very much the creative driving force. We have both chosen bass players who wrote almost all of their band's material throughout. Um, and we have all chosen albums by bands that have a singer with very limited singing ability, but who are <laughs> nevertheless, who are nevertheless absolutely perfect for these albums. <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting chat. And before we get into it, let's have a listen to some of what we've been listening to over the last week or so. Until all is lost, first my heart. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that taster. So we better get into the albums proper. And as always on this podcast, we do them in chronological order. So that means we are starting with Iron Maiden's debut, Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Let me start by giving you a little bit of an insight into my record collection in 1980. Okay, I had a number of albums that... I kind of liked it. My, my tastes had been sort of fairly eclectic. Um, my very first album that I got was a Perry Como Greatest Hits album, uh, which I'm very proud of. Um, but as I became musically aware and more mature, uh, my record collection in 1980 effectively was made up of British Steel by Judas Priest, Super Tramp's Breakfast in America, and I think it was... Um, uh, Outlander Stamore by the police. Uh, and that was it. Oh, and and If You Want Blood, You've Got It by ACDC. The next album I bought was this one. So I have a I have a quite a, a strong emotional connection to this album because this is the start of my journey with this music as well. So part of what I've gone through over the last seven days has been, do I think this is a great album because I have such a strong connection to it? Or do I think it's a great album before, because I think it's a great album? And we'll come on to the answer to that, I guess, at the end when we put the scores in. What I would say is that I came to Iron Maiden knowing absolutely nothing about them in 1980. This album came out and it struck me that this was just this. I mean, is there a more heavy metal album cover than Iron Maiden's debut album? You've got Eddie on the front looking very different to the Eddie that appeared even two albums later on, Number of the Beast, where he had evolved into something really quite terrifying. Um, he's a bit cartoonish, this sort of garish green kind of thing um, in a night scene. Presumably he is the Prowler, the opening track of the album. And they've got this amazing logo that is just immediately ready to market. And, and so I put it on, and because I only had three heavy metal albums, I played this an awful lot. And did I play it an awful lot and love it because I only had three albums, so I played it a lot and I loved it? Or did I love it because it was a great album? I think it's because it's a great album because I listened to it this week and I fell in love with it all over again. So this is Iron Maiden. They're formed in Leighton in East London. Um, the album was released on April the 14th, 1980, having been knocked out in 13 days in January of that year and released on the EMI label. It runs to a little under 38 minutes, produced by a guy called Will Malone, uh, who was apparently so disinterested in the recording process or the band's music that he simply sat and read a newspaper while they laid down the tracks and had very little to offer, either in the way of encouragement or critical feedback and so this is really although he's credited with it this is by i think most people's um uh understanding and acceptance an album that was produced by the band so this is iron maiden recording their album down at kingsway studios in london it was mixed at morgan studios uh, the band actually hate hate the mix on it they don't like the album particularly although you know the hardcore maiden fans absolutely love it it has the following lineup, Mr. Paul Diano on vocals, who would last for this and the next one, and then he was gone. Dave Murray and Dennis Stratton, both sharing lead and rhythm guitar duties. Steve Harris on bass and the incomparable Clive Burr, God rest his soul, on drums for a debut album by a heavy metal band released at a time when punk was still rising, really, 
This did astonishingly well in the British charts, made it to number four and spent 18 weeks on the chart. Didn't do anything in America. Um, and it went platinum in the UK, selling 300,000 units. Um, all the tracks, bar one or two, were written by Steve Harris. It's a nine, sorry, an eight tracker, four on side one, four on side two. Prowler, Remember Tomorrow, Running Free, Phantom of the Opera, Transylvania, an instrumental, Strange World, Charlotte the Harlot, the first introduction to her, and the cataclysmic closer that is the title track and, well, band title as well, finally uh, closes it all out. Um, There you go. That's my eulogy to Iron Maiden, boys. Where did you get to it with it? <laughs> You're right. This is such an important album. It, it's it's groundbreaking. It really is. I mean, it, it, listening to it again this last week, it still sounds fresh. It sounds unique. Um, there is that rawness to the production, which I, I quite like. You know, considering this is their first album, it's it's a very balanced band. I mean, this really is something where the the whole is more than the sum of the parts, I, I think. Yeah, and Diano's voice, it is limited, isn't it? Um, you know, I was sitting there thinking, well, what would this sound like if it was Dickinson singing? <laughs> yes. yeah. but, uh, and whilst whilst the vocals would be better, it wouldn't be this. No. <laughs> and that's the point. So, yeah, it's been fantastic Listen to this. Steve? I was going to impertinently answer your question, Mark, of whether it's um, whether you love this album because of its connection with you or because it's a great album, and say it's because it's your connection with it. But that would be um, that would be a bit too flippant, <laughs> would it not? Um, let's talk positives. It's Eon since I last played this, and as soon as I popped on Prowler, two abiding memories came flooding back, and I was really curious to see if time had changed my view on either. The first being that. I, I absolutely think, and, and it's been proven this week, that side one's monumentally better than side two, and that's still very much the case. And I'm going to get some head shaking with everything I say here. I know that, and that's fine. And the second was that I really like Paul Diano as a singer, and I still do. I, st I, st I listen to this. It's interesting what you said, Richard, about what, what would it sound like with Bruce on it. 
Deanna does things on here that he could only do that Dickinson wouldn't have done right. And it's just right. But mm. we're agreed on the fact that it's right for the album because that's where they were and he's on it. You can't help yourself but compare the two because they are the two names that are associated with the microphone of Iron Maiden. Um, but I like Deanna's voice. I really do. And, and I'll be interested to, you know, hear you kind of forensically go through his role um, within the band. Generally, I like the album. I do generally like the album. You know me. I have a very laissez-faire attitude with most new wave of British heavy metal. But this is good. You know, this is, this is good. There's absolutely nothing in it to suggest there's a super group in the making. I will say that. There are clues, the first being that it's on a big label. You know, money talks, and they're clearly going to back them. And secondly, and what I've learned so much about over the last week, secondly, is that everything you see about Steve Harris is this is a man who was only ever going one way. I mean, what a, what a band leader. Wouldn't tolerate rejection, failure, anything. I mean, you alluded, Mark, to the number of lineup changes that there'd been over the previous sort of three or four years, presumably with Harris wielding the axe every time. And when you're being driven along by someone like that, I guess the sky's the limit. Do I like the album? Yes. Am I going to gush like you two? No. Fair enough. Okay, so side one, track one of eight is Prowler. I mean, what an introduction to a band. Even at this early stage, if you go back and kind of think about it now, there's absolutely no doubt about who this band is. And it's a unique sound. I don't think um, I had heard anything quite like this. That bass line, I mean, you know, this is the bass players episode and you can't get away from Steve Harris's bass. It's got lovely, uh, really kind of hooky chorus in it. It's quite menacing, quite dark. Uh, in terms of the lyrical content, um, it is exactly what it says on the tin. It's about a prowler. Um, <laughs> you know, fairly misogynistic vocal, but then you, it's 1980 chaps and it's heavy metal and it is pretty much a, a man's land at this point, um, with the exception of girls' school. Um, and it's got this lovely lead guitar work. The first got two two guitar solos in it. First one by Dave Murray and the second one by Dennis Stratton. Um, who would be fired for being essentially too AOR. Um, and that was proven, actually. We'll come on and, and review Lionheart, the super group that he formed um, at some point in the future. But um, this is his only album, but it's a glorious guitar solo on this. A great way to start the album, in my view. Yes, Stratton and Deanna, didn't they go on and, um, and form a kind of maiden band called the original Iron Men as well? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think he slightly peeved <laughs> that he was no longer involved? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing that makes me really laugh about this song, it's a great song, by the way, is that you think of all the weighty subjects that Harris has turned his attention to over the years in terms of lyrical content and songwriting. There's a couple on here. And track one, album one, is about some weirdo flasher stalker perv. You just think, you know, yes. he's kind of based it really down a bit, isn't he? But, you know, no sign of what's to come. I like this. I, I do like this. It's a great song. Um, I love Diano's voice as well in this. I really do. I think it actually suits quite a kind of a, it's a rustic song. No, I'll, I'll get that out of the way now. I've got no problem with his voice throughout this album at all. The first track is your first ever big maiden finish. So yes. I think there are some yeah. some little, here we go, hello, we'll be around for a while. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a good start. I, I, I do like it. 
But uh, there's still better to come, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is better to come. Definitely better to come. But track two, uh, Remember Tomorrow, which is a song written, well, the lyrically, lyrics written by Paul Diano about his granddad, who he lost um, while he was out on, to- on tour. That He says, Diano says, the lyrics don't actually reflect his granddad, other than the fact that apparently Remember Tomorrow was was one of his granddad's catchphrases, sort of, you, you never know what the next day will bring, so Remember Tomorrow might be a better day than today, was kind of the sentiment. Um, it's a re- I think it's a really brave choice, because it's so much slower. I mean, it builds, and you get the maiden gallop, and all the rest of it eventually come in, but for a band that's in a tearing hurry to get things done, and to make their mark as a heavy metal band, I think this is you know, it's introspective and kind of dark and it, it's it, there's some really nice musical motifs through it that you don't really expect from the new wave of British heavy metal and I think I think yeah fair play to them this is this is where I think you hear the maiden that's to come because they're not scared to to do stuff that is so completely counterintuitive I think it's a great song but this is where you really also really hear the limit on Diana's voice because the, the band can go as high as they want, but there's a there's a threshold for Paul. <laughs> there's a threshold. This is almost a prototype epic. I mean, there's an epic to come on this album, but you know, in two tracks time. But this is almost feels like a sort of a kind of signal a signal of where they would be going with these kind of big, drawn out, long songs, two, three, four paced ballads, for want of a better word. You know that they would become famous for. Again, I I, I must be blind to to the Diano limitations. I don't mind him hurting on oh, the top bits <laughs> I, I, I mean i love it i don't i i sent a t- uh what's that didn't i right at the beginning when i changed it saying i don't want to hear any nonsense about paul diano's voice because he is absolutely perfect for this album and i absolutely stand by that when he's singing down in this in the in the you know the part of his range i mean it, 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 the quieter <laughs> pieces it, it, yeah. it's lovely let's let the gushing begin i think this is a incredibly brave second track um and it reminds me of the, the maturity that they'd obviously already reached in their songwriting for this album. It parallels with uh, "On Through the Night" and uh, and "Sorrow Is a Woman," you know, and the, 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 there's real ambition there. And yeah, and it's, isn't it great? We get the so this song has the first ever maiden gallop on record. Hallelujah! Yeah, yeah I love the dual guitars. Yeah, as Steve says, I mean, it's a mini epic. I think it's fantastic. So, uh, track three then. We leave the sort of introspective, considered, um, nuanced approach of Remember Tomorrow and we just get into an absolute banger. Um, This is kind of, this is Adam and the Ants style, tribal drums, introducing Running Free, the first single from the album. Again, uh, written lyrics written by Paul Diano, apparently about him as a kid. Um, he said, my mum ruled my life, but she said to me, you live in a shit area, but do what you can do and see what happens. As long as you don't hurt anybody, just get on with it. But I did get into trouble with the law a few times, and that's the only thing I wish I could change. The grief I gave my poor mama. I never knew, really knew my de- real dad, but my stepdad was really cool. Sometimes he'd surprise us and walk in when we were doing some speed, but he'd just brush it off as long as it wasn't heroin or the hard shit. I don't have the same attitude with my kids, though. If I catch up with anything, I'll kick the crap out of them. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is this is about a, a lad on the run from the police in LA uh, and gets caught uh, and then escapes. I mean, it's pretty simple stuff, but oh my god, 
I love this song. This is just, I heard this in 1980 and I was just sold, completely sold. And of course, it's got one of the most recognisable bass lines of any rock song ever, hasn't it? Right at the start, just the drums and the bass. Quite punk influenced, isn't it? This there are definitely yeah. some punk influences through through this album. What's been interesting about Running Free is going back to it now and critically assessing it. I've not given it as high a score as perhaps I would have done back in 1980. But but I mean it's it's, it's iconic, absolutely iconic. Steve Steve's going to be slightly more circumspect about this. I'm I'm beginning to think. Yeah, it's fine. Um, I do like it. It's pretty, this weakest track on side one. Pretty straightforward, and yet Maiden fans swear, but it's their most played track live off this album. So this is clearly, you know, a staple and one that, you know, Maidenheads will um, fully expect when they go see them live. And I get it. It's, it's unbelievably catchy and, and it's, it's nwobbum, isn't it, in, in, in a three-minute 22 nutshell. Yep, and it's glorious in all its glory. Um, and we close out side one with, um, I think, a bona fide epic. I mean, this is the first indication, isn't it, of that Steve Harris can write long as well as short. It's got that sort of literary reference point that so much of his stuff does have, but it's also got that signature Iron Maiden sound and and attack, that just blistering gallop. I don't, I, you know, I, I prefer Running Free to this because I, I quite like the blunt force trauma. Yeah, it's a great way to end side one as well. I mean, it's just mad, isn't it, this song? On a debut album. But the thing is, I mean, even back then, they could put it off live as well. I mean, it really does show how talented they they all are. I mean, I do feel for Diano. I mean, <laughs> if Harris, Harris came in with these lyrics and this, uh, this rhythm and said, oh, yeah, you've got to sing these words to that <laughs> and, <laughs> and he, he more or less pulls it off but uh, you, you've got to stay in, in in time with this guitar it's got so much in it I mean, the, I mean, it's almost queen type harmonies in it isn't it um you've got the slow guitar solo and then of course you've got the middle bit with the with, where the bass starts it all off again with some triplets and bass triplets what what's what's not to like and then you, the gallop, and um, and then that you know if back to that insane main riff at the end. I mean, it's it's just mad. You haven't even begun to do it justice there, Richard, in terms of the the amount of moving parts in this bloody song. It's astonishing. I mean, I tried to sort of annotate it, you know, figuratively try and write down <laughs> what was going on. But fuck me, I just gave up. I said you just got to listen to this thing to 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 allow it to do it justice. I think it's an astonishing. I think it's an absolute for a band of this. I mean, we was going to say uh, at this age as if they were just you know, new kids on the block. They've been around a few years, haven't they? Unbelievable, almost sophistication, maturity in the songwriting. And I do love those kind of prog rock choral harmonies that mm. um, that, that Richard alluded to. I, I, I think that's a really fascinating touch because, of course, you lose that um, later on down the line, don't you? But yeah, yeah, just the solos as well, you know, the fast and slow, the rep. Just always, this track is always evolving and you never quite know where it's going to go. I think it's almost genius. Um, we talk, don't we, about, we have talked in the past about vocalists who get dragged along by the hair. <laughs> Eric AK. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. One, one of the many cases in point. Um, and, and this is true here. You're absolutely right, Richard. Yeah, it's, it is brutally quick in places and 
yeah, I think Dickinson would struggle to keep up with yeah, yeah. as well. Um, you know, I mean, and and he's a much more accomplished singer, obviously. Um, and can we just do a hat tip to Dave Murray, who I mean, I love Dennis Stratton's guitar work, but Dave Murray is, I think, I have come to the conclusion listening to this this week that he is one of the most underrated guitarists there must be in, in mm-hmm. heavy metal. He is well well regarded, clearly. He's in the biggest rock band of them all, or certainly one of the two biggest rock bands of them all. But his name is never the first off anybody's lips, I don't think. And yet, his work on this album is just outstanding. Yeah. Um, we flip it over, and if you want a sense of a band that is quite confident in what it's doing, they open side two with an instrumental. Uh, and not just a, a prelude or a intro into something else. It's a full-blown, four minutes, four-second-long instrumental. Um, uh, do you know what? It reminds me of some of the kind of epic end-of-side-two tracks that Maiden have kind of built a reputation around, and it particularly reminds me of um, of Alexander the Great, actually. If I'm being absolutely honest, I get the skills, but I'm slightly indifferent to it as a track. Again, musicianship on it is amazing. It was really good guitar, bass interplay, and Harris is all over the place on this on the bass. So what? The, and it and actually, it's that that keeps me interested in this song. <laughs> uh, just hearing what where where's he gonna go next? It's an oddity, isn't it? And it was apparently written in 1975 with lyrics, which would explain because I've never quite understood the song title. How do you come to that from an instrumental? That makes no sense at all. But apparently, there were lyrics. And I read that he came up with the idea for the song while walking home from the from his local, the cart and horses, presented the song to his band at the time, Smiler, and they just they just said, "What the fuck? We've got no chance of playing that. It's far too complicated." <laughs> so he just parked it for five years. It's I, I, I do musically, I get it, um, but I, I just think it's an oddity. Yeah, I agree. Um, just talking about Steve Harris for a moment, He, the other thing that's worth noting about him, particularly given the brutality of the bass work on this album, is it's all finger picked. It, there's no, he doesn't use a pick. Oh, yeah. Um, which is he just... Got, he got enough. into trouble. Didn't he get into trouble with a producer or something for who wanted him to use a pick? Yeah. Or, or, or I made that up. I'm sure I've yeah, told that fuck somewhere. Off, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, which, yeah, he's a nicely, softly spoken man. Um, but I, but I think he knows his own mind and what he wants. I think he's he's built a reputation for that. Um, Strange World is track two, side two, and again, it's another. I, I have to. Li- it's one of those songs where I have to listen to it to remember what it what it sounds like. It's not. It's not a track that comes back easily to me. It goes up. The intro is so bloody long. You think it's another um, instrumental. So I'm kind of. I just wanted to get some lyrics now. But this, to me, again, it's another one that was written about five years before. And if you think about, if this was written in 1975 or 70, and, and according to, and I'll tell you why I think it was in a minute, this was before the Wobbum, this was before Punk that this was yeah. written. I mean, it, so there's there's no wonder it's got that kind of little prog feel to it. Um, and, it and it does feel like a prog song, doesn't it? The way it sort of builds. Mm-hmm. And um, I like it. There's, there's a lot of light and shade in there. It's just a bit aimless. But the reason I know, because Paul Day, who was the original singer, claims he helped write it in 1975 and I got this lovely quote not that he's bitter he said it still hurts to think the first ever song I ever composed on a big selling album and nobody knows it was me not to mention how I scraped to earn a living while Mr Harris is living like a god 
Bless him. And that was Paul Day. That was that, that who I was the original vocalist. I gather. There you go. Well, way back in a, the middle of the seventies. I do. I do have some sympathy for him because I feel the same way about Run to the Hills, <laughs> which I laboured over long and hard, uh, but I never got any credit for it. Well, we um, appreciate your work on it, so that's fine. <laughs> Again, though, uh, before we we kind of uh, move on. Um, uh, another nice vocal from Paul Diano, the man who can't sing, but it's in his it's in his pitch wheelhouse, isn't it? It's, it's mm. nice and easy for him. Okay, so track three, penultimate track of the album. She's here. Charlotte is uh, has arrived. Twenty two Acacia Avenue, ladies and gentlemen. Um, song written by Dave Murray. So Dave Murray is responsible for introducing Charlotte the Harlot to um, to the world. There is nothing at all complicated about this it is a good old-fashioned new wave of british heavy metal banger great wailing guitar solo in the middle of it what's not to like uh suddenly my i'm happy again and the album's picked up it was almost poppy this isn't it that's what i've really enjoyed about this album the variety on it is incredible yeah i mean everyone knows this I'm, i love the stop starts the little intricate fills slows down in the middle again and then you know typical maiden explodes again to the end um so yeah great stuff yeah it's okay it's a fine track and then it gets it does get better as it as it goes i don't quite get the shard the heart thing there's a there's a, there's a trilogy isn't there 22 acacia mm-hmm. avenue and something else isn't there and who is charlotte the harlot she's a whore okay <laughs> fictional or known to one of them uh fictional fictional okay. Yeah, I figured. I wondered if it was um, autobiographical from Dave Murray, perhaps. I don't know what you're suggesting, and I'd like to jump to Dave Murray's defence here. There's never been any suggestion of impropriety on his behalf. He'd be gutted if you jumped to his defence over that. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so we move on to the final track on the album. This this is not a bad way to go out. Uh, they are the most simple lyrics. We will probably listen to in the rest of this podcast, however long it runs. It's just the same cor- same verse and chorus repeated several times. But just... <sighs> you talk, I'm just going to listen to you. <laughs> I love this song. Well, th- this has got to be one of the original inspirations for Thrash, hasn't it? In terms of the style mm. and the speed. Yeah, again, Harris's bass is just phenomenal. It's good that you chose this. He deserves to be on this episode. This is punky as well. This is absolutely mm. born in punk, immersed in punk. You know, sounds like some, you know, some of those choral harmonies. You think it sounds like the undertones or stiff little yeah. fingers or something, you know? So, yeah. But it's a great finish. Great finish of the album, definitely. Paul Diano has gone on record quite generously, I think, and, and said something we all know, but he said it, which is Bruce Dickinson is the greatest singer Iron Maiden have ever had but I think he's done a phenomenal job on this album and the mm. second thing I, I want to say is is we haven't talked about Clive Burr so Richard you are the drummer in the family on this album his drumming is is intricate varied but it never it never dominates it, it's say so it's a very very well balanced album all round uh, yeah like it a lot like like close drumming a lot so there we go. That was Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden. Highs and lows. Uh, Steve, start with you. Okay. Well, 
the, the lows are on side two, and it's a choice between Strange World and Transylvania. So, uh, Strange World. Um, and the highs, I love, I've given them both the same score. Um, Remember Tomorrow and Phantom of the Opera. And I think I'll just go for Remember Tomorrow. Richard. Yeah, so my low is Transylvania. And yeah, isn't this interesting? So, my, yeah, my high is Remember Tomorrow as well. Uh, I think it's an amazing piece of music. Um, and so do I think it's an amazing piece of music and I think it is a much better piece of music than Running Free but I can't get beyond Running Free so that would be my high and uh, yeah well my low is, is Transylvania I think um, rather than than uh, Strange World but um, yeah there you go that is Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden from 1980 it's time for us to move on by two years fast forward uh, to 1982 and another band that reinvented the genre in their own way and it's Motley Crue and Too Fast for Love Steve Opening album sleeve notes So yeah I didn't as I said I didn't choose this because Nikki Six is a particularly groundbreaking epoch making bass player but um, there is a very good one I chose it well rudimentarily because I like the album a lot too fast for love but i mean it's the size of six's personality and his role um in effectively creating this 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 beast of a band and this album came out um 10 months after the band was formed um just six months after vince neil who was the missing piece in the original jigsaw the vocalist was hired as frontman so all pretty whirlwind stuff although i'm sure everyone knows six have been in this band called sister with blackie lawless subsequently a band called london he was a showman and a big deal, and he had plenty of um, songs in his locker, most of them on here, I believe, by the time he left um, London. And the idea was to come up with, and it wasn't new, but it, it felt new, was to come up with some sort of, sort of stripped-back, badass, all about attitude, party rock, but with plenty of metal flourishes. And this album um, and Shout of the Devil are, to me, well, they're proper hard rock fair, nothing namby-pamby about either. They're metal albums, you know, you, you look at them and they're easy to say the piss out of the crew, but because they were all about attitude to a degree. Um, but what they did, it was a sort of collision of, of rock and appearance and notoriety, and that hadn't really happened much in the past. It felt like we were being exposed to something really different here, um, building upon what some of those sort of edgier glam bands of the 70s, you know, there's plenty of Mark Bolan about um, the crew, plenty of Kiss, um, but they were also building on sort of that, that sort of pioneer sound by groups like Hanoi Rocks. So I think we had in the crew um, effectively mastering the art of showbiz, we don't give a fuck, aggressive shock rock. As I say, all about the attitude. And the problem, of course, with so many of these bands, the good times don't last long, sh probably shouldn't last long. Um, and you could argue it lasted longer with the crew than many of their peers or disciples. Because I love their first three albums and there aren't many of this type of band who produce two good albums. Never mind three. The problem with the crew is they kind of refuse to throw themselves away <laughs> in later years, and they've just become a kind of pastiche of themselves, almost an insult to the um, to, to the art form which they helped to pioneer. Um, and therefore, it's easy to look back on an album like this and just dismiss it as oh, motley crew. It's 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 a huge album. It's a huge huge album. Um, so let's remember this and shout at the devil and theatre of pain, and remember what a classy rock neo-metal crowd-thrilling band they really were um and, and, and you know bass player nikki six was very much the driving force in that so just a few facts about the album um 
So it was released on November the 10th, 1981, recorded the month before on, well, originally it was on the leather label, self-financed leather label, and then redone by Electra very soon after. It's 39 minutes, 37 seconds on leather, 34.04 on Electra. I'll tell you why in a bit. Um, the crew produced it and they did it at Hit City West in Los Angeles. The personnel, the classic quartet, Vince Neal's vocalist, Nicky Six on bass, Mick Mars on guitar, Tommy Lee on drums. It reached 77 in the States, but it has since gone gold. And then the track listing. We've been listening to it on in the order that it was assembled on Electra rather than Leather, which, as I say, was the label upon which this was released before Electra bought in. Um, just 900 copies were issued on Leather, split between three different pressings. And if I've not mentioned it before, I happen to have one of them. Um, the, the major difference between the two versions is that Leather, well, there's a few differences, but the major one is Leather had 10 tracks on it, one of which, Stick to Your Guns, was jettisoned in the remix. I don't know why. I think Mark's got a theory. I wonder if it was because it had been released as a single before and therefore Electra felt it doesn't need to be on there, so they didn't. Anyway, I love it. I absolutely adore it. A colossal influence on rock music for the next, well, five years, maybe up to a decade. And, I'm, and I know you two will have loved it as much as I do. <laughs> I think it might be impossible to have loved it as much as you have, Steve. <laughs> and uh, what, what version of it did you have again? Oh, here it is. Look, shall I hold it up again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's quite amazing that this was uh, well, on that original label released in 1981 isn't it I mean, it it really was ahead of its time as an album it's got some amazing energy on it but it's very raw yeah i've enjoyed listening to it i, I think there are some fantastic songs on it there are some that are not so fantastic and there is one absolute dog's dinner no that's really interesting now i'm really fascinated to know what the dog's dinner is because there isn't one so that's really, really going to be interesting. Mark. 
I'm with you, Steve. I, I'm sitting here thinking, uh, which one is which one's the dog's dinner? Because because like you, I'm thinking there's no downside to this album that I can hear. And and again, you know, it it might just be because I have a strong emotional connection to the album. It could be back to that again. I I, I admit that. Frank Ferrano, Nicky Six. He's come a long way from his ballet days, hasn't he? From when he did ballet. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, uh, look, there are loads of kind of glam metal bands from yesteryear, the 70s. You know, Sweet, Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter, we shouldn't mention Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter, Mud, you know, T-Rex. There are loads of them. The, uh, the Glitter Band, loads of them. You know, you, rule them all, you know, reel them all out. Um, you know, and then you've got Kiss. So... Glam is not exactly a new concept, but I don't think I had ever seen anything like this band in visually. Never mind the music, it just, just visually. I just think this is just an awesome album. I really do. I think it just it was completely new. Just just the whole sound. Because it's a rock and roll album, really, but with with loads of it's got you know loads of dirty guitar on it, it's got distortion, it's got phasing, it's got cowbell, it's got everything that you know you want from from a, a, a rock album, but also you can hear the attitude in it throughout. And I love the way that they go from these sort of quite bombastic um tracks like you know live wire and piece of your action take me to the top and they and then they dial it all back down to and i'm going to mention I, I inadvertently i'm going to mention the dog's breakfast at some point here but then they dial it down for stuff like starry eyes which i'm guessing might be the dog's breakfast but i don't know uh, and merry-go-round which I, I just think you know merry-go-round for me is, is just an absolute highlight so yeah i i listen to this and i think this is this is the beginning of an era um, and like you, Steve, I, I love the first three albums. I couldn't give a flying monkey's ass about Girls, Girls, Girls onwards, if I'm being absolutely honest. And they came, and, and I think it is a shame that they have become a parody of themselves. And they have, and I'm glad they've stopped. Although they're having signed a, some sort of legal agreement, said so they'll never tour again. I think they're about to. Um, yeah, I, I, I love this album, and I'm really interested. I'm genuinely, sort of critically interested to know what it is about whatever the, the dog's breakfast is that makes it a dog's breakfast. So let's get on and listen to it. So nine tracks on um, on the, the Electra release, um, which was well, actually released in 82, wasn't it? Because I think um, that the leather one came out in 81. On Electra, is five tracks on side one, and it kicks off with, um, well, what a calling card. It kicks off with Live Wire, the second single off the album, a song about domestic violence, apparently. It's just a great speed glam rocker, a real statement. Um, you know, remember, this is the first song on the Cruise first album, and it's uh, sassy, gritty, rocky, unbelievably catchy, classy calling card. Um, the rhythm coming from Lee, Six and Mars, so on point. Um, and, yeah, as I say, best not to look too seriously at the lyrics. Yeah, brilliant start, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. It lays out everything that they're about. I mean, classic Mars riff, tons of energy, double bass drums there. Well, we're talking bassists, aren't we? And and Six really powers this along. I mean, it sounds like he's that the bass is the instrument pushing everything else along. Bit of cowbell. I really, really like this song. Really like it. 
Yes, I mean, it's the first of many, many, many cowbells that we're going to hear on this album. Um, I, you know, we talked about Vince Neil and we've talked about his limitations as a, as a vocalist in the past. But again, he's absolutely perfect for this, this album, I think. And it is, it is a great calling card. It's, um, it, it, it reminds me a bit of Overkill. In, in, you know, Motorhead's Overkill as the opening track. It really kind of just puts a big flag in the ground and says, this is who we are, this is what we do. And they just do it over and over and over again. Um, it's even got, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take quite so long to come back in at the end as, as Overkill. But there is that kind of, you know, you think it's gone and then it comes back moment. Um, brilliant start and what a calling card. I don't think, I don't think Vince Neil sounded better in his in his crew career than he did on this album. No, I genuinely I agree. don't. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, track two, track two on uh, track two on the original was public only number one. On this one, it's "Come On and Dance," and I I can't tell you how much I love this, but but I'll try. I absolutely adore this. And why do I adore it? Because it sounds like the template for Rat's entire career, and I just <laughs> love Rat. This is just the prototype for everything they did on Cellar and Invasion. Neil's performance on this is superb. I, I just, I probably love it because it sounds like lack of communication or something. I just think it's brilliant. I really do. It's better than lack of communication, though. And I love the way it drops into that kind of driving riff on the second, second verse as well. It really kind of picks up and gets going, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it it's just bouncy and dirty and hooky and brilliant. Um, you know, back in the day, all I really wanted was was which will surprise you both because I'm less about that now, but I just wanted speed, wanted the music to be hot and fast. And this, this isn't, this is just a bit more kind of controlled and hooky and boogie and Nicky Six's bass in this is just fantastic as well. You and, and I think the thing about all three albums that we're talking about in this episode is you can really hear the bass across all of the albums um, in every single song. There isn't a single song where where your bass player is not front and centre at some point. Richard? Ah, yes, here we are. The signature Motley Crue dirty riff, isn't it? That that detuned guitar. <laughs> it uh, just puts a smile across your face. Uh, yeah, great groove. More cowbell. Brilliant second song. Um, and track three is Public Enemy number one, which, as I say, was pra- tra- uh, track two on on the, the original. And it's, it's a good song, I must admit. It's... It's my weakest on the album, actually. Um, I, I do like Nicky Six's bass line, making it all dance a bit. Lee's super crisp drum hits. I mean, Tommy Lee's drumming on this album is superb. And also, the other person that... Oh, there's one left, and he has been a figure of fun throughout my adult life. But Mick Mars, he's a better guitarist than than, than I jokingly give him credit for. And he, uh, you know, I think he picks this one up, for example, um, with a pretty decent solo. Um, just before the completely random cowbells. It's all a bit okay, this, certainly in the company of what's just been, and, and I, I think there's so much better to come. This has been my weakest of the album. Nothing wrong with this. Mm. I love this. I think, again, it's got a really catchy chorus. You know, this is, it's bubblegum in the way that crew are so good at doing bubblegum. The, the most shocking thing about this is that on Ultimate Cowbell, it's got more cowbell than come on and dance, which I just find astonishing because that you couldn't move for the bloody cowbell on that. But 
Um, I, th- I think this is really good. I'm surprised it's your your weak spot. Oh, there has to be one. But, well, something has to, something um, has to be there, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah something has yeah. to be there. But I'm surprised it's this one, I guess. Okay. Uh, I'm with Steve that it, it's a step down from the first two. Uh, it's a bit more formulaic. I mean, it starts the second verse with tragedy. And then I start <laughs> to think, does it sa- It does sound a bit like the Bee Gees <laughs> tragedy at times, isn't it? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um uh, the other place where it's lost marks for me on this one, Vince Neil really doesn't sound like he's that bothered on vocals. <laughs> it just sounds like he's singing along. So yeah, put a bit of effort in, will you? Come on. Do you know that's the best? That's the best impersonation of Ozzy Osbourne I've heard. <laughs> um, Merry Go Round is uh, track four, or On with the Show, as it's otherwise known. You'd have thought they'd have held one of them back for the second album, but I, I really like this. I love the gentle start. Um, Neil's singing is ever so heartfelt. <laughs> you know, when he put his mind to it, when he was bothering, unlike on the previous song, he was um, he, he, he had it nailed. Um, and then it picks up, and Neil combines mournful with powerful, and it's a nice tune. And Lee's drumming's brilliant. There's plenty of magic in this track, almost wiped away by, I've just lauded Mick Mars. There's a solo in here, which I think is just wrong for the song, and I've always felt that. Um, and, and the backbeat under the solo is just a bit clumsy. Um, but Neil's big vocals at the end that bring it back in. It's just, a, it's just a really brilliant song. Brilliant song. Do you think this is it? Do you think this is the moment? No, it's not the moment. It's not the moment. Although I, I find do find it a bit lightweight. I find it a bit jerky, not particularly well constructed. It feels it feels like it jerks from uh, part to part. It's another step down. Funny enough, this this at times over the last forty years has been my favourite track on the album. I love this song. You know the story that the, what it's based on. <laughs> it's a yeah. brilliant story. I do, but I'm too. I'm I'm welling up, mate. I'm just crying during this song. I'm just sorry. I'm an emotional wreck. So you might as well carry on talking. <laughs> so apparently, the inspiration for this was a bizarre incident that Nikki Six witnessed in Seattle, in which a man with a mental disorder refused to get off a merry-go-round. <laughs> this is all wrong. I'm laughing. It's not funny, but refused to get off a merry-go-round till the authorities came and pulled him off it. it <laughs> But we never, we we never quite understand what causes him to be attached to the merry-go-round. But anyway, yeah. that apparently is the inspiration. I don't know whether that's apocryphal or, or not. Um, I really like this this track. I love I love the, the the way it's. I like that jerkiness actually. I think that's what makes the song the fact that it stops and starts and stops and starts. But I I, I get what you mean. I, I can see how that would also be irritating. But I quite like it. What I would say about Nicky Six is any story he's probably told is almost certainly apocryphal, given that he spent. But the last 30 years, not even knowing what his name is. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, they like, you, you said they liked, you know, they liked dirty guitars, or, or I can't remember <laughs> what it was you said, but they liked drugs as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Take a pinch of salt with the cocaine with that man, yeah. certainly. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, there you go. Take Me to the Top is um, how Side One closes. Great start, great riff. Love the pause, change of tempo, blistering chorus just kind of back to where you were, really. Riff and repeat, so simple, but just so good. Yep, I, I like this. I love the way it drops into the riff, just gorgeous. It, and and again, I think Vince Neil on this is, is just phenomenal. For a singer who has the ability to irritate at times, 
in later incarnations of the band. Um, yeah, he's he's absolutely on point in this, I think. It's as catchy as syphilis, the chorus. Yeah, they're back on it in this one. Great finish to the side. Everything they're doing, there's energy. And great bass line. Really good bass line on this. Okay, so all good things have to come to an end, and that includes side one of Too Fast for Love. But the, luckily, there is the redemption that is side two, which begins with Piece of Your Action. And again, it's a proper crew track, you know, pot and heavy, that two-paced thing, teasing you with something sort of stripped back and then picking it up as an ensemble. They do it a lot. And it's just got one of those choruses, um, just one of those really, really addictive, brilliant choruses. Uh, but one of my favourites and a great way to start side two. I mean, it's a true classic. Oh, fantastic groove, fantastic riff. I think it does lose a little bit in the middle with that solo yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that middle piece is a bit too long. That's the only thing I'd say uh, against it. But then it, you know, everything's forgiven when it then just knocks back into this absolute killer riff. <laughs> this is this is my album high. Always, well, say sometimes it was merry-go-round, but mostly it's this this track is just. I just think this is the absolute almost flawless. Just in terms of what they're trying to achieve, it's got. That riff just sticks in your head. The chorus is a, is amazing. The, even the groaning that should be really cheesy um, <laughs> kind of fits to the fits the whole the whole thing. So yeah, I'm yeah, I'm just quite happy at this point. Right now, listen. Here's the deal. There are three tracks left, and since two of them are too fast for love, and on with the show. Richard, do you want to talk me through the dog's dinner? Yeah, yeah. So. Starry eyes, um, more straightforward. I mean, it's it's more melodic. I mean, it's almost AOR, isn't it? Um, quite pleasant for Motley Crue. <laughs> I quite like <laughs> the guitar chords are simple, but I, I quite like them. I think there's decent vocals from Vince Neil on this, um, and and the the bassline tying it together is all right. So yeah, I, I don't mind Starry Eyes. Okay. That might give it away what the Diggs well, Dogs that- dinner is. Yeah, that surprised me. I do agree with you on um, Nikki Six's bass. Let's groove it along. I, I kind of had it down as a kind of... It is different. I had it counted down as a sort of early 80s pop song almost. I mean, it's got that unbelievable accessibility compared to everything that's gone before. It's, it is a it is a curio. I, I do like it a lot. I, I really like Starry Eyes. I think it's, I think it's quite... Um, I think it's quite grown up, actually. Yeah. Um, in a way that the rest of the album deliberately isn't. Um, you know, I think they can do grown up. They did, you know, they did on certainly on Theatre of Pain and and in parts on Shout at the Devil. It's got, I think, it's got a really nice vibe. I think it's got, it, it captures a mood. The lyrics as well are quite sort of evocative, um, and, and I quite like the breakdown in the middle of it as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of this. Okay, the title track, um, and it's about. 40 seconds shorter than the original, which had a kind of slow ballady intro, um, which is really nice, and then thunders into the riff after about sort of 30 or so seconds. On electric, it just goes straight into the riff, so you, you don't get the sort of nice bit at the start, which is a shame, but fine. Um, anyway, the meat and drink of the song, it's a fucking mean riff. Um, I love that stop-start rhythm section um, with almost sort of gang backing vocals. But it's the riff on this. It's just so nasty. Right. Good bits. Brilliant start. Really catchy riff. And it, I mean, it's, it's iconic. Iconic crew. I do struggle with 
Vince Neil stretching for those high <laughs> notes at the start. I, I do find that a little off-putting. It, but it's still got a good mark. It's a decent title track. There are stronger songs on the album. No, straight I, ahead, with... isn't it? It is straight ahead, certainly. Yeah, I'm sorry, with Mark. you, Richard. No, sorry, I'm I'm with you, Richard. I, I think I, I really like the chorus and I like the riff and I'm not bothered about any other part of it, really. No. Yeah, and I've girded my loins now, and I'm and I'm ready for this. So, Richard, <laughs> on with the show. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So to start with, it's a fairly average song. <laughs> um, unless I'm, I, I need to listen to this song with a metronome because the timing, as far as I can see, is all over the shop. Even McMahon's second guitar sounds slightly out of time with his first. So I don't know what the hell he's doing there. And it's almost as if that they've hired a drummer to play with them for the f- for the first time and he's pissed all over the song. His <laughs> fills are just so I mean are they out of time? I, I'm not sure I'm sitting there been um count counter time trying to see if they are. But they're just completely at odds with the rest of the song. I mean it sounds like a band playing together for the first time. I find it shocking it was even included. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to generously suggest that it's a prescribed change of pace that they've been working on through this track, um, and they've changed it quite often. That's all. Which which you know, <laughs> it's their ball. They can play with it how they like. I do like it. I must admit. I know it does start like merry-go-round. But, um, it's just, it's just been, look, pipe down, will you? <laughs> yeah. East Enders theme tune, all through, isn't it? You know? oh I've actually written down what a tidy finish, which, having written that down now, I'm just beginning to wonder it myself, but I still love it. I do like it. It, it just brings back happy memories. It's just got a lovely kind of feel to it. If you don't overanalyze it, it's just got a lovely feel to it. And I'm buying the next album on the basis of this track. No questions asked. So it's still got a soft spot for me. Yeah, I'm with I'm with Steve. I mean, I think I think much of the much of the prosecution that we've just heard uh, can be offset by simply going, uh, hello, home sweet home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of gold standard, Motley Crue. Look, there is more cheese on this than you can shake a stick at. And yes, I completely agree. There are moments of it where you just wince and go, oh, ouch, <laughs> what just brushed me there? Um, and that, But then it all comes back in and it's fine. It's fine. Like Steve, I, I kind of feel very satisfied at the end of this. It's not the outstanding moment on the album, but I think probably, Richard, your score will be more accurate of its, of its accomplishment, <laughs> <laughs> more accurate in terms of its accomplishment. I think Steve's and my scores may be slightly more sentimental. Yeah, heart ruling head. But then you know yeah. you listen to music with your heart, don't you? So um, yeah. that's fair enough. Well, come on then. Let's um, remind oh, us what well, your high is. Yeah, uh, on with the show was Milo, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and <laughs> and vying for top spot. It's between Livewire and PC Your Action. Okay. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, despite the fact I really like it, I think On With The Show is still my low point on the album. Um, and piece of your action. So, yeah, ditto that. Okay. Public Enemy number one would be my lowest scorer. Um, and Come On And Dance all day long. So there you go, Too Fast For Love by Motley Crue, 1981. And that's two of the three done on our All About The Bass special. So one more to come. Um, and that's Megadeth and Countdown To Extinction. Richard? Opening album sleeve notes. Countdown to Extinction, which is uh, Megadeth's fifth studio album, and the second with, I guess, what many consider, certainly I consider to be the classic lineup that of uh, Dave Mustaine on vocals, guitar, Dave Ellison on bass, backing vocals, Marty Freeman on uh, guitars and backing vocals, and Nick Menza, wonderful RIP Nick Menza on drums and backing vocals. Um, yeah, it's one of my favourites. Uh, as I said earlier, I picked it in celebration of Dave Ellison. Love his bass work on this album. Uh, yeah, 1992 it was released on July the 14th. It was came after Rust in Peace, uh, but uh, was a shift by Megadeth. I get really in the following of the footsteps of Metallica and the Black Album in a, sort of a more defined, more melodic, bigger production kind of kind of style. Um, I think it was Ellison said that sort of Metallica opened the door to, to this sort of style of music and, uh, and Megadeth were happy to follow. And um, subject matter, as it, this is Megadeth, so it's very challenging as usual. And I think, I mean, it showed sort of post-Rust in Peace that this new lineup had really gelled and uh, they brought in Max Norman uh, to produce it. We'd have already featured the album that came after this, Euthanasia, on an earlier podcast in celebration of Max Norman's work. It was released on Capitol Records, um, and it's a pretty long album, 11 tracks uh, running in just over 47 minutes. Chart-wise, it did really well. Got to number five in the UK, uh, spent eight weeks on the chart here, and spent 58 weeks on the charts in the US and uh, reached number two. Uh, went double platinum, at least, US, and uh, certainly got silver here in the UK. It's one of my favourites. Again, it will be fascinating to see score-wise on this podcast where it sits, uh, both for me and for Mark and for Steve. It's got a brilliant side one, but like so many other Megadeth albums, it does tail off a little bit in side two. Um, track listing, though, is as follows. Skin of My Teeth, Symphony of Destruction, Architecture of Aggression, Foreclosure of a Dream, Sweating Bullets, and This Was My Life, Make Up Side 1. And Side 2 consists of Countdown to Extinction, High Speed Dirt, Psychotron, Captive Honor, and Ashes in Your Mouth. No
enjoyed going back to this album again um and i it's one i returned to a number of times i saw them on the tour in 1982 at hammersmith odeon they were fantastic so yeah uh, this album is one i hold pretty close to my heart how did you two get on yeah i mean generally i really like this album i'll say the obvious get it out of the way i'd like it more if dave mustaine wasn't singing on it but if dave mustaine wasn't singing on it it wouldn't be megadeth would it so um mm. it's just it's just one of those voices that just grates um and funnily enough there's a couple of tracks on here where it doesn't which is interesting because he doesn't change much i remember the first time i played this as well took it on holiday with me to greece the first time i put it on i just thought you know oh my god that the brutality that you know mustaine's uber madness it was just you know absolutely takes me back to a time because um i just remember it being astonishing and and yeah richard you made the point that you know musically everything was kind of changing thrash seemed to be deciding that it needed to become a bit more sort of cool or commercial or whatever um but this just gets me wistful you know a little bit nostalgic i mean i'm a yes metal and hard rock was in the throes of a kind of makeover to me this was almost something of a comfort blanket in the early 90s almost reassuring the old school. I know they've threshened it up a bit, and it's no killing is my business, which I love to bits, but it's still heavy. It's still hostile. It's still got this fucking nut job singer spitting out his venom. Um, and that's com- And I found that comforting. So, yeah, there are nods to a different direction in this, but it's still Megadeth doing what they do best, and that makes it great. Um, I think it's a superb piece of work. I think it's, I think this is, has been really interesting over the last week listening to this because, like you two, I remember hearing it for the first time. I remember thinking, "Oh my god!" I remember driving. I had a, at the time I had a forty-five minute drive to work, um, and I remember playing this you know an awful lot on the drive in. Uh, in fact, the the office that I was working in was was kind of conjoined a, uh, a a lawyer's law practice. And um, uh, when I arrived in the car park one day, there were a couple of people uh, standing in the car park waiting for me uh, with the only intention of asking me to turn the music down before I came into the car park because they could <laughs> hear it in their offices. Um, so, yeah, I remember I remember this. I remember being blown away by it. Um, I think it's been interesting this week because I don't think it's as good as I thought it was back then. You're absolutely right. Side one is just... Phenomenal. By side two, I've got Mustainitis, and uh, I'm I'm kind of thinking, right, this is a bit of a slog now. 
Dave Mustaine does not sing. He speaks lyrics. He's a, he's a bit like Mark Knopfler in that sense. There's a certain amount of melody and musicality in places, but by and large, he speaks the lyrics. And when he does that deliberately, when, when the song is constructed around that approach, e.g. Sweating Bullets, it's absolutely brilliant. And when he tries to sing, it's less brilliant. But as you say, Steve, if it wasn't him it wouldn't be Megadeth. Although I have always wondered why he didn't just go and hire a vocalist <laughs> and stick to playing the guitar, because he's very good at doing that. When we reviewed Euthanasia, where I felt, because I, I I always think Euthanasia and Countdown to Extinction are companion pieces. I think they, they work as a pair. Um, and I would always have said that Countdown to Extinction was the better older brother and Euthanasia was the slightly irritating little brother i'm not sure that is my view having spent this week listening to it yeah yeah and there are parallels aren't there because we, we we did when we reviewed euthanasia we said the same thing about uh yeah that sort of mustainitis creeping in around side two where you've, you've kind of had enough of, of it talk about you know when you first played this album i mean i i you know i i just got this i i didn't know anything on it bought it stuck it on, played it blind. And then of course I was just completely belted around the head by the opener, which uh, is skin of my teeth, um, an amazing drum fill, some huge power chords, and then into uh, an iconic uh, Megadeth riff. Is it a song about suicide? No, it's not a song about suicide. It's actually about how many times Mustaine has tried to kill himself and couldn't get the job done. <laughs> um, and, and immediately, again, the, 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 the emphasis on melody, much more groove in the chorus. Ellison's bass holding this whole song together. Great song. Good start. Yep. Comes along and slaps you around the head and kind of makes you sit up and just take notice, doesn't it? It's, it's absolutely brutal. There, there is a marked difference between... I think, Rust in Peace in this album, because this is much more considered, better produced. You know, I think Max Norman's done a fabulous job on it, as he did with Euthanasia. This feels now like a band that's in its groove. It's hit its stride, doesn't it? And they know what they're doing. It's very much... I was going to say it's to a formula, which sounds derogatory. It's not meant that way. I think they found the second stage Megadeth sound in the same way that the first stage with Killing Is My Business and Peace Sells had a very distinctive kind of template. I think this is a new template and they are really comfortable with it now. And this is a, a brilliant opener. Well, it moves straight into one of my favourite Megadeth songs. So Symphony of Destruction and what an absolutely bone-crunching riff. A very simple bass. I think we any of us could play this one note, but my goodness, how it works! But then into this this melodic swaying chorus that is almost lighter than air, and then it sits back down again. It's super heavy. It's super light. It's got a brilliant solo. It's fantastic. And this is this is where I think Dave Mustaine is absolutely brilliant vocally, because it is most of this is perfect, but there's still still when he's reaching for those kind of harmonics it all turns to shit but luckily he's got this absolutely stonking riff to
to get him out of it. And yeah, it, yeah, it was the singles, and it had a controversial video with a presidential figure being assassinated, which was obviously then banned by MTV, having gone through very high rotation. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of imagery in there. There's the Pied Piper of Hamlin. There's all sorts going on in it, and a completely infectious song. And I, I think arguably their best known, isn't it? I would say their best known song, if in terms of mass appeal, commercially, yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in my darkest hour, it's probably non-commercially, but <laughs> this has got to be the one that everybody would know. Yeah. He had that really uneasy relationship with MTV, didn't he? He was desperate to be on it, also desperate to offend, and you kind of knew that that ne'er the twain shall meet. It was a difficult thing, difficult balancing act to get right. Well, yeah, but also it was it, it was the establishment, wasn't it? And he's anti-establishment, but Fair he enough, needed right. the establishment. I saw a Twitter conversation between him about Trump. Forget whether it was him or the person he was replying to. Someone mentioned that it would be a great signature tune for a Trump campaign. And I'd Mustang or the bloke he was talking to said it would be it would be an absolute tragedy if this metal masterpiece was in some way connected to that wanker. (laughs) 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 Okay, well, obviously Megadeth are all about uh, the uh, the creative professions. So we move from symphony to architecture and uh, architecture of aggression. So yeah, (laughs) here's here's the third belter. Again, we've got that power of blend of power and melody this this time quite a bit faster lovely sort of time shift riff brilliant middle section um typical megadeth very complex but but accessible there's there's nothing about architecture of aggression that suggests it's going to scan quite well lyrically but you don't have to make it work it's a song i should like probably more than i do because of the speed and the aggression of it but Mm. um is it's my I don't know. It's just a bit too, just a bit too straight ahead. I mean, you're saying I mean, I'm you're getting complexities that I'm not quite getting, but um, I prefer other stuff on on this side certainly. Let's go on to track four now, which is foreclosure of a dream, uh, and we're into a quartet of crackers. I mean, um, the first time I put this album on, I thought, my God, this is just unbelievable. I, I love foreclosure. It's slower tempo. It's lighter. It sort of yeah, starts melodic and then it's got the moves into sort of heavier passages. Uh, this one inspired uh, by David Ellison and uh, and his family he came from a family of farmers, uh, and it's all about the implosion of the farming community uh, due to Reagan's policies on Russia, uh, and uh, where America stopped exporting grain, and that meant there was a huge surplus. All the prices crashed, and tons of people went out of business. Um, and yeah, it's got this famous recording of, well, it's actually George Bush Sr., I think, isn't it? With the famous read my lips speech in the middle of it. Love this song. I was always slightly in awe of the song title as well when I first picked up this album. I thought, fuck me, I've never seen the word foreclosure before written by a, a heavy metal artist. And I thought, that's a big build to live up to. And and and, and it does. Everything about the sort of proper wordsmith at work, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, like you, track's just awesome. I love the key changes the drop into the chorus that big hit and then it drifts back out again into the next verse oh, i just think it's brilliant almost the highlight of side one for me i think marty friedman uh said about uh, about this he said um 
Max Nor and Dave Mustaine and myself are all uncompromising perfectionists. And when you get the three of us together in the studio doing guitars, it turns into a let's make it even more perfect competition. At the end of the day, the record was damn near perfect, but making it was tedious and painstaking. On foreclosure, I was doing the clean acoustic guitar verses. Typically, it takes a few minutes to play a part like that, but we were having problems getting a tone we liked and problems with st string noise, as well as tuning issues. It was an intense, hard day. Uh, and then he talks about uh, them putting a sign on the door saying, um, "Get keep out, this means you, and a famous producer who's unnamed kind of opened the door and said, how's it going? And just got a stream of invective from... Uh, <laughs> and turned aghast and walked out. Uh, <laughs> and Friedman says it, it was absolutely intense, the making of, uh, not only the making of this record, but the recording of this particular mm. song, um, that they mm. were just overthinking it. And the, the, the great thing about this album is uh, the shifts in mood... <laughs> So we, we now move into a, well, an unhinged uh, song called uh, Sweating Bullets. And uh, Dave Mustaine, because he's borderline schizophrenic, having a conversation with himself. Hello, me. Meet the real me. But behind this, we've got these big bass drums. I mean, it's almost orchestral guitars at the start, isn't it? I mean, it's such a big sound. But then you've got this sing-along chorus after Dave's spat his bile, um, a middle section driven by double bass drum, brilliant drumming by by Nick Menza. And yeah, just, it brings a wry smile to my face. Um, and uh, fantastic song. I, I, I absolutely adore this. It's the high point of the album for me. I just think it's, it is the wit and the humour in it as well given it's such a dark song. I mean, I, my favourite bit, bit of this is is, is the bit where he, where he goes, hello, me, it's me again. Yeah, it's just <laughs> this kind of, you know, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And it's got this kind of, uh, but in counterpoint to the actual lyrical content, it's got this really bouncy, happy kind of groove going on to it. Absolutely gorgeous. Can't, uh, absolutely perfect song. When you first heard this, did you think that's unreal? I've yeah. never heard anything like that before. I remember when I did, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I naturally find Mustaine's vocal style quite annoying, yet ironically on this song, hamming it up even more than usual. It's so appropriate, you know. The lyrics are just so unsettling. Only he could do it, you know. Um, yeah. It wouldn't work with anyone else doing this. Um, and I think that, that walking bass line through the sort of pre-chorus gives it such a sinister depth. It's just a super sinister number. And every step of the way on this side, as I said, apart from architecture of aggression, which I've only got a mild issue with, it's just it's just getting better and better and better. And you just you you you, you can't wait for what's next. This is mm. just priceless, absolutely priceless. Do you see the quote from from Mustaine? He said um, he said my wife used to have this crazy friend who had anxiety, and they go to parties all the time. Her friend would freak out and get in the car and drive off, and then I get a call from my wife, and she'd say. Uh, she left me again, and I'd have to get in the car and come and get her. And you'd think it would be the other way around, having a rock star boyfriend. I'm I'm thinking maybe he was the crazy friend. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's all just kind of an, an allegory. Mm -hmm. Oh, just brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, let's uh, finish off side one. And uh, that finishes with This Was My Life. Again, another bone-crunching riff. And for me, a deep... 
it's a decent finish to side one, but it is a drop on uh, the previous five. Great baseline, but more straightforward for me. Nothing wrong with straightforward. <laughs> I, I, I agree that it's it's slightly less complicated um, than what's gone before, but and it's not yeah it's not it's not the high point of the album for me at all. But neither is it the low. I think it's a perfectly decent way to finish off side one. What I will say about it in commendation is that when it comes out of that kind of thundering riff, it makes way for one of the well, not one of the best guitar solo on the album, but unquestionably elevated again by what Ellison and Mustaine are doing behind it. It's a great finish to the song and therefore a great finish to a side. Mm. Side two starts with the title track, a song all about animal rights. Um, I'm an amazing opening driven by this Ellison bass line. I love the bass on this track. Absolutely love the bass on this track. I love the build, uh, yeah, another melodic chorus, another quieter break in the middle. The flow on this song, it's a grand start to the second side. I love that. Babe. That opening bass line sounds almost Joy Division, doesn't it, before, um, before it yeah. actually goes into the song itself. It is brilliant. This is one of those tracks that contains so many moments that just continue to take it up a notch. The guitar line through the chorus, for example, rather than the vocals, which I'm kind of less bothered about. But I love that guitar break, for example, into the second verse. It's only a few seconds, but it's just absolutely brilliant. It's also such a melodic song. Sounds sort of slightly perverse or contrary, given it's Megadeth. But it's almost like a pop song. I'm not speaking Kylie. I mean, it's not a heavy pop song. But, you know, even the solo sounds like something that Europe would have done. I think the outro is phenomenal. But at this point... I'm not tiring. I have Mustainitis mm. is not saying this is a brilliant no. song. No, I agree. I also love that dancing guitar line above the, the chorus. It just lifts it, doesn't it? And mm. just makes it into something absolutely magical. And uh, and again, you know, Mustaine's lyrics, uh, voice rather vocals, I, I don't have a problem with them at this point because because everything else that's going on just works with it. Yeah. And it, it's when it's when we get into the arse end of the album. A, I kind of feel like they're just grubbing around for extra content. And B, it's it's not as cohesive, is it? The the back end of the album, the, the songs are not as cohesive as I mean, this is this is absolutely immaculately constructed. We get a drop down, you know, in, in track eight, which is high speed dirt. I mean, this is much more um standard. I mean, it's fast, really guitar driven. And what's it about? It's a song about parachuting, when your parachute doesn't open, and the speed with which you hit the dirt <laughs> when you hit the ground. It's fairly standard thrash, isn't it? Yeah, suddenly I'm slightly disappointed because Countdown to Extinction is so good, and then this just seems to me to be pretty lazy. And that's followed by track nine, which is Psychotron. More mid-paced, uh, more going on on this song. I mean, good bassline again in it, wah wah guitar, but yeah, I, I talk about the Mustaineitis. Um, I find his commentary style on this a, a little bit grating, if if I'm honest. Oh, I love this. Do you? I love this. Yeah, the last four tracks, three of them I don't like at all. This one I just think is an absolute joy, and I don't mind Mustaine's vocals at all because again, the song's subject matter is slightly loony anyway, so. He mm. kind of fits in, 
Um, now, this is one of the tracks of the album. I love that riff, <laughs> and it's a proper heavy headbanger. Yeah, I do like it. I really do. Steve, the, the, I know exactly why you like it. Do you want to know why you like it? <laughs> Go on. Because it is a complete rip-off of Mantronic by Wasp. Oh, well, I, just, I was trying to think, and I, and I then listened to Mantronic <laughs> by Wasp, and, yeah, that was the first thing you think of, isn't it? It's just a, it's a name that just takes you back, but it clearly isn't. <laughs> OK, let's, uh, let's move on then to track 10, which is Captive Honour. So this is... Uh, a song about uh, about prison. I like the riffs in this. Um, the the spoken parts. There's a lot of spoken parts throughout it, which is um, I'm not so keen on. I quite like the melodic start with you know Mustaine singing. I mean, it's got some amazing lines, amazing lyrics. Um, I mean, the, the the last three of the first verse. You know, and when you kill a man, you're a murderer. Kill many, and you're a conqueror. Kill them all! Oh, you're a god. Uh, I mean, no holding back on the on, on the lyrics. And yeah, for me, it again, it's a it, it's a tail off. Not as good as the other stuff on this album. I love that that lyric just before that, Richard, as well. When he, the way he snarls, breaking them up, just breaking them in, it, it's just so unsettling. I think it's brilliant. I really do love the start of this track. And yeah, I'm not overly fussed about that sort of conversation rap they've got in here as well. Ian Gillan did it much better on No Laughing in Heaven. <laughs> but it's um, <laughs> it's okay. Do you know what? I um, I gave up on this when we get the really cod south southern mm. um, yeah. court judge. Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a courtroom, isn't it? It's a sentencing judge. And it's just, honestly, I can do a better southern American accent than that. It's just <laughs> awful. And at yeah. that point, I just thought, oh, bollocks to this. I can't be arsed with it, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Yeah. Right, so, yeah, ashes in your mouth. Um, again, I think a bit more traditional. <laughs> you know, they're, they're signing off in optimistic mood, as Megadeth do, because uh, this song is all about the general hopelessness for humanity. I, 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 what do I like? I like the guitar melodies. I think the guitar solo, the dual guitar solos on this is really good. I think the bass is phenomenal. I think Ellison's bass in this final track is just great. And it's got a good finish. So I, I this this is a happy finish to the album for me. I, I think musically I agree with you, but I've I've had enough of Mustang now. And you're right, the the, the out is is great, but I'm ready for something else. Yeah, a bit weary of it as well. I don't like that chorus either. It sounds a bit reminds me a little bit of when um, Metal Church gets it slightly wrong. Um, but, <laughs> um, but the riff and um, Ellison's, but yeah, spot on, spot on. And it is, and again, it's got another complex track, and there's so much going on. Um, a lot of good noise on there, but um, loads of different stuff. Okay, well, let's have some highs and lows then. Mark, do you want to go first? Yeah, I think my low would be high speed dirt. Um, I just think it's a bit of a nothing track, really. And uh, my high is, always was, always probably will be, Sweating Bullets. Steve? Um, high Speed Dirt for me, and having extolled the virtues of side one, um, the highlight of the album for me is Countdown to Extinction, which just happens to be <laughs> track one, side two. <laughs> but there you go. For me, Captive Honour gets the low. 
Uh, oh, loads of highs, loads of highs. Uh, but I will give it to Symphony of Destruction. Right. So there we go. That's Megadeth, who followed Motley Crue, who followed Iron Maiden. Uh, we'd better then see how they score as we go track by track through these albums and uh, add them all up to discover where they're going to fit in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, uh, so there we go. Uh, we've now scored these, so let's see how they have done. Um, we started off in 1980 with uh, Iron Maiden and their debut album, Iron Maiden, self-titled, uh, and that fared pretty well. Probably not as well as I expected it to, but that was largely because Steve's not a huge fan of the new wave of British heavy metal, I think, um, because he gave it a 7.3. Richard, you gave it an 8.2, near as damn it, and I gave it an 8.4, near as damn it, to give an overall average album score of 7.95833. We moved on two years to Motley Crue's debut album as well, Too Fast for Love, Steve. Um, I gave it 8.17. Mark, you gave it 8.18. And Richard, who's still trying to get his head around the timings on On With The Show, gave it just 7.5 for a total score of 7.94815. Richard, Megadeth. Yeah, we were a little closer, I think, on, on Megadeth. Uh, Steve, you gave it a 7.68. Mark, a bit more at uh, 7.86. And I was, not surprisingly, the highest of the three of us, giving it an 8.13 or 8.14. And that gave Megadeth an overall total of 7.89 and a bit. So we're, they're all pretty close to each other, aren't they? All, all pretty much 7.9s. Uh, so uh, let's head over now and see how close they are and where they are in the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Right, so here we are back in our Hall of Fame. Uh, we now have the grand total of, of 186 albums up on the walls. And where did the three from our episode about bassists end up? Well, not too bad. Uh, of the three of them, Countdown to Extinction by Megadeth was the bottom of the pile. Uh, and that comes in at number 44 just above it, Eat Him and Smile by David Lee Roth and below Black Rose by Thin Lizzy. Uh, raise, rise up five places to 39, and we find Too Fast for Love by Motley Crue. Uh, so they're above Vane's No Respect, but very interestingly, they are 0.3, sorry, 0.003 of a score below Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. And Iron Maiden uh, are a few places higher at number 35. And uh, with their score of 7.95833, they are a dead heat with Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. And they're ever so slightly below Fire of Unknown Origin by Blue Oyster Cult. Well, what do you think of that? gents particularly <laughs> too fast for love and shouts at the devil well talk about consistent <laughs> uh, yeah I, I i would never have called that before we started but there you go i mean two two albums that are very different 
and yet entirely consistent. What's interesting is that um, the third Motley Crue album we've done, Girls, 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 <laughs> is at number 175, and therein says it all. Yeah. And there you have it, all about the bass, done and dusted. Our celebration of um, a trio of four-string wizards, Messrs. Steve Harris, Nicky Six, and Dave Ellison, and three of their finest albums as well. So that's been uh, that's been good fun. We've enjoyed talking about them. We've enjoyed listening to them, certainly. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed listening to us. We're off to our beds now, accompanied by Dave Mustaine, perhaps, with a lullaby. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> thanks for your company, and we'll do it all again next time. All the best. Cheers. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 